keeping on um, target with our summer series here doing a synthetic study of each of Paul's 13 epistles and with the synthetic study the idea and the concept in mind is to do a, a general overview nothing too specific but at the same time not losing the important details that we see in the scriptures and in first Thessalonians we're going to see is um, it's probably Paul's second overall epistle, the first one being Galatians, depending on how you date Galatians, if you, delay, if you date Galatians early or late, Thessalonians is the second one. Um, Paul first visited Thessalonica during his second missionary journey, 50 to 51 AD, so that's when he planted the church. Paul spent about three weeks there establishing the church and teaching them the gospel. So just imagine you're a new believer, Paul's there for about three weeks, maybe a little bit longer, going through um, pretty much the fundamentals of the Christian faith. So they had a three-week crash course. So we're going to be seeing here in a little bit that they had some questions. Um, they weren't specifically um, grounded or completely understood in all of the doctrines of the Christian faith. So Paul is going to write this letter. And we're seeing here as Paul was establishing the church, we had four groups of people who were saved during this time. And we can see this in Acts chapter 17, there's an account of it. We see there were Jews at the time, proselyte Jews, meaning um, non-Jewish people converting to Judaism were saved to Christianity during this time, high-ranking women, and also pagans. So the Thessalonica church, the church at Thessalonica was very well-rounded in its culture and its background. It had people coming from all sorts of walks of life. Later on, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how things were going. So Paul establishes the church, sends Timothy back to see how things are going. After this, Timothy met Paul in Corinth, and they relayed the message. And the message that Timothy gave to Paul is the reason why Paul wrote this letter to, first Thessalon to the Thessalonian church, this first letter. After hearing Timothy's report, Paul writes this letter, and we see that the purpose of this letter for First Thessalonians, some of the Thessalonians apparently believed that Jesus was about to return momentarily, and because of this reason, a lot of people quit their jobs. And we can kind of see this. I know there's some historical, um, in the past 30, 40 years, there are some people that have done this. They would pull their children out of school thinking the Lord's going to return. Or there was churches that would advise their pastors, don't worry so much about saving for the future. The Lord's going to return. You're not going to be here to hit retirement. And I talked to some of those pastors today who are now entering in retirement and they kind of are kicking themselves for not being wise stewards with their money. So it's something that we're always going to be looking for. The second coming of Christ is going to be um, a theme that we're going to be covering this morning. But we still want to be wise and maintain. Also, some worried about the fact that their loved ones, what happens to the individuals who died before the second coming or what we're going to see here this morning, the rapture of the church? What happens to the individuals who died beforehand? It's another issue Paul is going to address. And the pretty much the fundamental basis of the First Thessalonian letter is the hope of the church. And we're going to be studying the rapture of the church. We're going to be getting into the different details between the rapture and the second coming. So we'll be getting into this. The foundation of First Thessalonians. If you're in First Thessalonians, look at chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord 
Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So the structure of this verse this morning is going to be the fundamental basis for the entire study. Notice the first thing here. We have faith, love, and hope. Paul talks about faith, love, and hope throughout the Gospels. Normally it's faith, hope, and love. But in this letter, it's faith, love, and hope. And specifically, now look at the words that come before it. So faith, what's before that? It says, work of faith. thought faith was um, by grace through faith alone, not by works. So there's a little bit different meaning of it here. The labor of love. Does love necessarily come natural from us? Why does it say labor of love? And the steadfastness of hope, meaning steadfastness or endurance or patience and hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God the Father. So first, faith. What is faith? Faith is the source of all Christian values. Secondly, love. It's the sustaining principle of the Christian life. And third is hope. It's the current expectation motivating us for our life to come. And these three values and these three nouns that we're seeing here is the fundamental basis of the First Thessalonian letter and also in our Christian walks. Faith, hope, and love. Making sure we have each one of these understood completely and not only understood mentally, but also living it out in our hearts and our daily lives. So the first one, we see faith. But what I'm going to emphasize right now is the work of faith. And in Greek, the word work is ergon. And it means that which displays itself in activity of any kind, meaning deed and action. The word faith is used nine times in 1 Thessalonians. The word work before the word faith, includes the idea of producing something. Now, when we're talking about this kind of faith, we're not talking about saving faith. Saving faith and a working faith are two different ideas. The same word is used, but how is Paul using the word? How is Paul using the word faith here with work? Not referring to saving faith, because that's not a work. Faith here, simply defined, is trust in or the reliance on Christ, and it's not simply a general belief in God or a simple acceptance in a doctrine, it's the practical application or the action of the doctrine that we have already accepted for our salvation. Faith is what defines somebody as a Christian once all the time, you know, well, he's a believer, or you hear about a certain celebrity or an athlete, or he's a believer, you know, and that's the word we use to communicate to each other that he's a Christian, he's a believer, he has a saving faith. And not only does he have a saving faith, but we see evidence of that faith, that it is a working faith. So on a daily basis, an individual is trusting in three things. The finished work of Christ on the cross, that's where we place our saving faith. That event happened in the past. So we place our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's a past event. Second, we pay attention to what Christ is doing today, right now, here in the present. And third, we focus on what Christ will do in the future. So as a Christian, our eyes are on all three. The historical event of Jesus, written in the Gospels. What Jesus is currently doing today, because we read in Matthew 28, 19, that he says he's going to be with us always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus is working today, just as well as he was working in the past. And on the future, our eyes fixing our hope on what the Lord is going to do. And we're going to see that this morning, the Bible speaks a lot about the future events of what Jesus is going to do. We read these events and we 
treasure those in our hearts. And we hope and we put our final expectation that the scales of justice, all of the evil, all of the wrongdoing, all of the suffering, are going to one day be balanced out. That the Lord is going to come back. He is going to establish his kingdom. And in doing this, the scales of justice will be balanced back. I want to go to a good illustration here of working faith. If you guys would turn with me to James chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 18. And in James chapter 2, a lot of times there's confusion over this. Because Paul's going to talk about not by faith alone. And we've read in Galatians and we've read in Ephesians that salvation's by grace through faith, not by works. And we come to James chapter 2, verse 18, and we see not by works, not by faith alone, but by works. So it's important, first of all, that we understand the context of what we're reading in James. We just saw in 1 Thessalonians Paul saying the work of faith. He's writing a letter to people who are already saved. So saving faith isn't what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the application of that saving faith, a working faith. They already have a saving faith. Now he's emphasizing the working faith. James is doing the same thing here. And in James chapter 2, look at verse 18. It says, But someone may well say, now notice that word say. This is a verbal affirmation. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. So what James is doing here is he's laying the foundation of individuals and there's two types of faith he's talking about. Faith that is simply just verbally expressed and faith that has evidence. This isn't about saving faith. A lot of people call themselves Christians. A lot of people like to identify themselves with Jesus or with God. A verbal affirmation. But what James is talking about here is where is the evidence, the evidential faith. Not just the spoken faith, but the faith that has evidence. Because look at verse 19. It says, you believe that God is one. And that is the biblical doctrine, Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. So yeah, you can confess that you understand that the Bible teaches that God is one. It says, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Now, do demons have a saving faith in Jesus? Absolutely not. They understand the doctrine, but they don't have that saving faith and they don't have a working faith. So what James is explaining here is evidential faith is more than just confessing a specific creed or a specific doctrine or getting up every Sunday morning, going to church, saying your prayers before you go to bed. It's more than just that. And this is what he's saying. A confessed faith versus evidential faith. Look at verse 20. But all you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that the faith without works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So what James is saying here is the evidence that Abraham was saved, and if we go back to Genesis chapter 22 when he offered up Isaac on, on the mountain, there was evidence of his faith. Verse 23, And scripture was fulfilled saying, And Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, a working faith. The evidence of our faith is in our works according to the doctrines of the Bible. But it's, an, it's a faith that's evidence, that's seen. Kind of like Missouri. What's Missouri known as? The show me state. 
That kind of thing. You tell me you're a Christian. You tell me you're a believer. Now show me. That's what James is emphasizing here. Verse 25. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works. Not meaning a saving faith, but evidence of those works. When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Or faith without works is useless. Meaning a dead faith. A dead faith does not produce fruit. And that's what he's saying. Where's the fruit? Where's the evidence? And this is what James is illustrating here in James chapter 2. This is what Paul is referring to with the work of faith. Individuals who are already saved. Individuals who already have a saving faith in Christ. Now, where is that evidence? So now going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And in verse 3, we'll take the second one here. Labor of love. Now the word labor and the word work, very similar in Greek, but they have a different emphasis. The word labor here is kapos, and it means work, labor, or toil. So kind of like if you're in the garden pulling weeds, or if you're in the field plowing it, work, not just like the word with, that was with faith, but it's more of a, a grind, or more of a struggle, or more of a sweat, a work that you really have to push into. It indicates an element of discomfort or hardship. And the question is, does loving somebody come easy? And we can all focus on marriage, right? It doesn't come easy. A lot of times it takes work. You put any two individuals together for a long period of time or enough period of time, and all of a sudden disagreements and bitterness and grudges, all of those things start to creep in. It's interesting because people who normally go off to college, they'll meet a friend the first semester. They're not in the same dorm. And in the second semester, they'll move in together because they become buddies. But the second semester, as they move in and they see each other all the time, by summertime, they don't hang out anymore. You know, it's just it, loving somebody takes work, and we have to be honest about that. We can talk about the love of Christ. That's awesome. That's perfect. The love of Christ is perfect. But put that love into humanity and it becomes a work. And we have to understand this because a lot of times we'll lead with our hearts and we'll get tweaked a little bit and it'll hurt and it'll sting and that's it, I'm not loving anybody anymore, I got hurt. That's kind of the Christian mentality, even as believers, we've been hurt before, we carry that in the back of our mind, we're not gonna allow that to happen to us anymore, we're not gonna put ourselves out there anymore and we end up damaging our ability or hindering our ability to love somebody. I'm gonna read a verse for you here. Romans 5.5, 5. it says, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. All right, so this agape love, this supernatural love of Christ, does not come natural to each individual. It has to be poured into our hearts when we believe in Christ and when we have that saving faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us and start to, starts to transform our heart from within. So first of all, the biblical definition of love, God's agape love, it's supernatural. It doesn't come from our abilities. The human does not have the ability to love the way God does. That's why he has to plant it in our hearts. God's unconditional love poured out in our heart is the unique force that compels us, motivates us for the labor of love. I'm going to read some verses to you. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking. Matthew 5, 44. 
I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is this easy to do? Does this come natural? No. Especially when we can specifically pinpoint a time in our past when they wronged us, when they wronged somebody else. Now we have a reason to justify why we have this bitterness, why we have this grudge. Verse 45, Jesus is saying, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he, referring to God, his Son rises on the good and the evil and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So there's no special favor treatment, you know, preferable treatment between the believer and the unbeliever. God loves both. And what it's showing here is if we can love unconditionally like God does, we can represent the character and the nature and the heart of God to humanity who's lost. And this is the whole overall point of this. Do people see the love of Christ when they see us? I think of myself, I instantly laugh. No, I, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. The question is, do we really want this love? Let's be honest. No, we don't, right? We like to hold grudges. We like that bitterness. We like that, that little bit of vengeance that we can get back on somebody who's wronged us in the past. And the thing to be honest about is we have this sin in our hearts. We have to confess this sin. We have to say, Lord, I do not love you enough. I need to love you more. Show me where I'm weak and enable me to overcome it. It's a labor. It's a toil. 1 Corinthians 15, or 13 gives us some definitions of love. Love is patient. So are you patient? Love is not provoked. Are you easily provoked? 1 Corinthians 13 says it's not provoked. I get provoked, especially on the highway. Somebody cuts me off, I'm angry. I don't like that, right? Love does not take into account when wronged. How many people in your memory banks can specifically go back on somebody and list at least one or two things that they've done wrong to you and you keep that in the back of your mind and you hold that grudge against that person. You know, it's kind of like tying a knot in your heart. It's kinking the hose. The love doesn't flow through. So we have to take these things into account. Understanding that this love, yes, it is supernaturally poured out into our hearts. But working faith and toiling in love is how we come to this point of sanctification in Christ. Now, continuing on this theme here, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And look at verse 7. And in verse 7 it says, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. What is sanctification? It's becoming like Christ. It's transforming ourselves, our sinful nature, into the nature of Christ, only accomplished through the Holy Spirit who's poured out into our hearts. Verse 8, So he who rejects this, is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. There it is again. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. It's something that God teaches us to do. This isn't something that comes natural. But like anybody who sits in a class, when the teacher's teaching, it's up to the student to listen and to respond. God can be teaching, God can be showing, God can be demonstrating, but we have to recognize this and submit to this out of obedience to Christ and walk in the manner that he's teaching us to do. So it's known as progressive sanctification. At the moment we believe we're saved, but for the rest of our lives, it's a progressive process of changing from who we naturally are to the heart of Christ. 
It's known as progressive sanctification. And the rest of our lives, we're going to be working towards this goal. It's often said that churches are great places and they would be great places to go to if it weren't for the people who are inside of them. And I hear this all the time. Christians, hypocritical, they say this, but they do that. And a lot of times the world likes to use that as its excuse not to go to church or not to open up the Bible because they knew so-and-so who confessed to be this and they they turned out to be that. Um, When people become Christians... We're not automatically perfected saints. And we never really will be in this lifetime perfected. But our goal is to press into perfection as far as we can, to become as sanctified as we possibly can, to become just like Christ as much as we possibly can. So divisions arise over insignificant issues. And we end up looking just like the world does. The world sees Christians and the world sees television and there's not a whole lot of difference between the two. The current culture and the church, the church is becoming so blended like the world, there's no real significant difference. It wrecks our witness for Christ. Two things we do as Christians, we hold grudges and we gossip. And these two two things are poison to the soul. These two things will definitely hinder the love of Christ for coming out. God calls us to love unconditionally. Even if we feel that we're in the right, or even if we feel that we are justified for having this bitterness or this hatred or this disdain for somebody in our hearts. Like I said, much easier said than done. Progressive sanctification takes a lifetime to develop this. But the more time and the more obedient we are to the Lord, the more our heart is conformed and transformed to the image of Christ. So back to 1 Thessalonians 1.3 again. We covered faith. We covered love. And finally, this morning, we're going to be covering hope. The Greek word is hupomane, meaning endurance, patience, fortitude, perseverance of hope. It's something that we continuously strive into, and it's the capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of our adversities. As an example of this, I can remember as a kid, it was either preschool or first grade. I can't remember which one. December 1st came, and they gave, us all, they gave all of us kids uh, a, pic, a big Santa head, and he had a beard. And each day, 1 through 25, until Christmas, I would take glue, and I put this up in my kitchen, and I would stick it on each one of the days um, of a piece of cotton. So by the 25th of December, Santa had a full beard, because each single day, you were putting one piece of cotton on each day of the week. And every time I would do that, I would just I would get so anxious because the 1st of December, the 5th of December, the 11th of December, Christmas just couldn't come fast enough. And my hope and my expectations were just, they were gaining and they were gaining. By the time December 25th came, I would just tear open my presents. I mean, one after the other, I was so wound up. I had so much anticipation for Christmas because each day I would focus and put a piece of cotton on Santa's beard, kept it in my mind for all of December. So then when I tore open my gifts and Christmas was over, I'd, you know, my gifts would be in the corner. I'd stare at them and I'd play with them for a little while. And then last year, my mom comes over with my box of toys as I was a kid. It's been about what, 25, 30 years. And I would look at it and I'm like, this is what I, I, I got so excited for. This, this Hulk Hogan figure, Macho Man Randy Savage, Sugar Ray Leonard boxing game. This is what my anticipation went into. 
after the gifts were open. And it still lasted for a couple days. I'd play with them, and then they'd just end up on the shelf. 30 years later, they're sitting at home in a box on my, in, my, in the basement. That hope disappointed. That hope came to an end real quickly. And anything in life, anything that's material, we put that kind of hope in. We put that kind of emphasis on daily focusing on things outside of God. It comes to nothing. This is the hope and the expectation that we have to put in the Lord. Jesus coming the first time, doing everything that he said he would do, is an absolute guarantee that he's going to come the second time. And for the past 2,000 years, the Christian church has been anticipating this event, the second coming of Christ. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. It says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Notice it says to wait. And that wait in the Greek is in present tense, meaning continuously be waiting, continuously be focused upon his son from heaven. And he ties this into a theological truth of the resurrection. Because of the fact of the resurrection, because of the historic fact that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, is an absolute guarantee. It's an absolute certainty that he's going to come again. It's not just some superficial hope that some religious leader wrote up, gained a following, and this is what we believe, and this is what we're putting our hope and trust into. We're putting our hope and trust into a historical fact that happened in the past, into a true historical person, the God-man, who will come again at the second coming. But this instance that we're speaking of here in 1 Thessalonians is what's known as, and we're going to be getting into this now, is the rapture of the church, and we'll get into this. But our point of time now, we look back on Jesus and what he did in the past, and we read that in the Gospels, but we're also looking forward to the second coming of Christ, which is also spoken of a lot in Scripture. Notice the last part of this verse. It says, it rescues us from the wrath to come. What wrath is he talking about here? The day of the Lord, and we'll see this in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's a technical term referring to end times wrath. We'll get into this in a little bit. Go to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19. Paul's going to continue on this theme. And in verse 19 it says, For who is our hope and joy? Now there's the word hope again. For who is our hope and joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you, notice, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? So again, the fundamental basis of 1 Thessalonians faith, love, and hope, and specifically hope, of the second coming of Christ, or what we call the rapture of the church when he comes to take his church home. Go to 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 13. And we're going to see how the second coming ties into our progressive sanctification. The second coming of Christ, how it ties into transforming our hearts and giving our hearts joy, giving our hearts hope, meaning that there is a coming expectation of the Lord and in verse 13 it says, So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Paul is praying to have their hearts strengthened spiritually in anticipation for the Lord's coming. Now the Greek word here, remember it says your hearts is cardia. 
Now, what is that referring to? Not literally the organ, but it's referring to our thinking, our willing, and our feelings in this human existence. Our entire mind, our entire heart, our entire soul is living for an anticipation or an event that is going to come yet in the future where God comes, restores all things, balances the scale, and specifically in the event that he's talking about here in 1 Thessalonians, the rapture of the church, taking his church out before the day of the Lord, before the end times wrath that's coming. I'm going to read to you this verse, 1 John 3, 2 through 3. I'm going to read this to you. 1 John 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet as we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So the more we think about the Lord coming to take us home, the more we're fixed on that event, placing our hope into the historic or actually the future historic event because it's already written in advance that this event is going to come, gives us joy, gives us hope in this world. Every night we turn on the news or we talk to somebody or we hear something going down in Appleton that's never happened before or in the Fox Valley that this valley is just, it's getting out of hand. But this is the area in Wisconsin that's supposedly supposed to be one of the safest areas. Get outside of Wisconsin, you go to the bigger cities, it gets worse. Get outside of the United States, take a look at the world as a whole, it's really bad. Where do we place our hope? Where do we place our joy if this is all there is? Or if God is not real and we're just here alone by ourselves and we die, where is the hope? Where is the joy? And this is what Paul is explaining here. Our eyes can become so focused on the material here and now that we're taking it off the Lord and we're putting it on temporal things, just like I did when I was a kid before Christmas came with my toys. You know, I get it focused on that. Week or two later, you know, the bubblegum flavor went away. Anything material will give you that. But if we're investing our hope and investing our time and our mind and the hope and the expectation of the Lord, John's telling us is that purifies our hearts. It sanctifies our hearts. It gives us hope. It gives us joy. It gives us meaning and it gives us purpose. So now... The rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, look at verse 13. Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. Notice what Paul's saying here. He does not want us to be uninformed of this event, meaning he wants us to learn about this, and he wants us to study this. About those who are asleep, remember, the Thessalonians had that question. What happens to believers who die before the Lord comes to take us home? What happens to them? And this is the question he's about to answer. Notice he also says in verse 13 that you will not grieve as those who have no hope. We don't have that type of grief. We don't have that type of sorrow as Christians because our hope is fixed on Christ. It takes that right out and it purifies and sanctifies our heart. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, again, he's tying this into the historical fact, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So one of those questions the Thessalonians has was what happens to the believers who died before us? And we see here, have fallen asleep. It's a figure of speech. It's a metaphor for believers who have died referring to their body. Why does the Bible call it sleep? Because it's temporal. 
Because at this moment, when Jesus comes back to take us home with him, what we're going to see is there's going to be a chronology of events. First, the dead bodies will rise to be reunited with their spirit, and then we who are alive will be taken up with the Lord. Look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remaining until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Notice that word caught up. The word in Greek is harpazo. It means to be caught up or snatched away. When we translate, or when the Bible was translated from Greek to Latin, that's where the word rapture came from. It's a Latin word that we caught to English now. People will say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it's right here. It's the word caught up. The Greek word is harpazo. When the Bible is translated from Greek to Latin, from 500 to 1500 A.D., Latin was the most dominant. The Latin Vulgate was the Bible for a thousand years. So people just adopted you know, the word rapture into their language. You go from Latin to English, that's where we get the word rapture from. Verse 18, comfort one another with these words. This is a message of comfort. This is a message of hope. This is a message of joy that the Lord is going to return and to take us home with him. So now the timing of the event. Why do we say that this is before the day of the Lord? Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now as to the times and to the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. So what he's saying to the church of Thessalonica is you have no need to even be worrying about these issues of God's coming wrath. Why is this? Verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So the Thessalonica church, the church of Thessalonica, was worried that they were in the day of the Lord. That they were in that time where God is going to pour his wrath out upon the entire earth. So what Paul is addressing is he's saying, remember chapter 1 verse 10, God has not appointed us to wrath. Look at verse 9 of chapter 5. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this key, the whole key to this is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is mentioned quite frequently in the Old Testament, specifically in Zephaniah chapter 1, 14 through 18. If you take that phrase, the day of the Lord, and go through the entire Old Testament, and then go through the entire New Testament, and you look at each verse and you write every single thing down, you find out that the day of the Lord is when the Antichrist is revealed to the end of the Millennial Kingdom. So if you take a look at the book of Revelation, it goes from chapter 6 to the end of chapter 20. That encompasses the day of the Lord. And there's specific details in there, specifically when God is going to judge all the nations that come against Israel in Revelation chapter 19. That this entire period of time, the day of the Lord, is when God's wrath and God's judgment is being poured out on the world system. This is yet to come in the future. But the message Paul is delivering to the Thessalonian church is that we're not destined for this wrath, we're not appointed to this wrath, and the Lord is going to come and to take us home before this comes. The church at Thessalonica thought they were in the day of the Lord, 
And Paul is making this very clear that they're not in the day of the Lord. You don't even have to worry about this. We're not going to see that time because the Lord is going to come in the air and take home his church. So end times wrath is the day of the Lord. Look at verse 10. Speaking who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, meaning alive or dead, we live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build up one another, just as you're doing. It's a message of hope. It's a message of joy. Whether we're alive or dead, we're with the Lord. We have nothing to lose. We have everything to gain. Go after it with everything you have, that progressive sanctification. Now, one thing is we'll finish up this morning about Christ's return. And we're talking about the rapture before the day of the Lord, before the wrath, is that it's imminent. What does that mean? It can happen at any time. Jesus gave a promise to his disciples the night before his crucifixion. I'll read this to you. It's John 14, 1 through 3. He's talking to the 11 apostles there. Judas was gone by this time. He says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, listen to this, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Now, did this happen? Did this event happen to the 11 apostles? No. John was the only one, I think, who didn't suffer a martyr's death. The rest were killed. So this promise is to the church, to the apostles, are the, the foundation of, of the church. He's speaking to the future church that will be here. And he's saying that he will come again and receive us to himself. This didn't happen to the apostles. It was a promise given to the future church that is yet still contingent, meaning it hasn't been fulfilled yet. And this is what we are waiting for, exactly what Jesus spoke to his apostles in John chapter 14. Matthew 24, 44. For this reason, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And Titus 2.13. Looking for the blessed hope, and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we can go all the way through the New Testament. This concept is here. And it's always tied into the concept of hope. That our future restoration is just but a blink away. That the Lord can come and take home his church at any moment before the day of the Lord, before the judgment comes. And as we've seen, as if you've been through Revelation chapter 6-20, through 20, that future eschatological wrath, the wrath of the end times, has not been destined for the church, but it's been destined for the world system. Different study on all of that as to the purpose of the tribulation and the purpose of the day of the Lord, but the focus again on 1 Thessalonians is faith, love, and hope. The working faith, the evidence of our faith, and the toil and labor that goes in with love, it's work. Naturally, our hearts want, want its own. We don't want to conform to Christ, even though we have the Holy Spirit, there's this battle going on. It's work, it's toil, it's labor. And lastly, the hope of Christ, he can come at any moment, and whether we're alive or dead, we're with the Lord. So, let's pray. And Lord, we thank you for this message, and we thank you for 1 Thessalonians, and, and putting it so clearly throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament. Um, this progressive sanctification, 
the transforming of our hearts into the image of you through faith, hope, and love. And Lord, we just want to lift our requests up to you this morning and make them known. We'd like to pray for Pastor Landon as he's on his sabbatical, that he's healed, that he's stored his whole heart, mind, soul, the family, Sonny and the kids, everybody, Lord, we pray for them. And we just thank you that we have this place every Sunday to come, and we thank you for the events such as yesterday with the, the music city and with the youth and just getting together and honoring you and demonstrating our love of you to the world. So we thank you for these things, and we pray you go before us this week, Lord. You know all of our needs before we even ask, so we thank you for even considering us, Lord, for who we are. And we pray, Lord, all of this in your Son's name. Amen.